big questions about the past and future of Canadian environmental history. I think that when environmental historians think about nature, they think in terms of an intricate and ever-present relationship between uh, the human and the non-human, one that we can never get fully right, but that is in the background of everything that we do. A roundtable discussion about the state of the field. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 58 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Last spring, at the annual meeting of the Canadian Historical Association, Niche sponsored a big roundtable session called The Past and Future of Canadian Environmental History. The panel included Stephen Bocking from Trent University, Jennifer Bennell from York, Joanna Dean from Carleton, Matthew Eviden from UBC, Micah Jorgensen from McMaster, Jamie Merton from Nipissing, and John Payton from the University of Manitoba. The panelists sat down to answer a series of questions uh, that was moderated by Jim Clifford from the University of Saskatchewan to explore the development of the field of Canadian environmental history and to speculate on some of its potential future directions. Fortunately, we recorded that session, so if you weren't at the conference, you can listen to it now. So this is sort of one of the big premise of this panel. Uh, there's a growing consensus amongst scientists and other uh, environmental scholars that the Anthropocene uh, New Epoch began in 1945, uh, which is also the starting point for the Great Acceleration, where global population, the economy, and all kinds of other indicators from nitrogen uh, fertilizer use uh, to global fisheries just skyrocket after 1945. So given this context, you might expect environmental history to reshape our broader understanding of Canadian history in a similar way that gender or social history has in recent decades. Has this happened, or do we remain a niche subfield? I'm sorry for that. <laughs> so, John, start us. Am I? Okay. So, uh, well, what I thought I'd do is to start by talking around some of the tensions around how uh, historians, environmental historians, have and should deal with the Um and it occurred to me that the Anthropocene is a historical concept that has been produced outside of history. Uh, it's produced originally by a chemist and a biologist, popularized by another chemist, uh, sort of codified by geologists. In fact, the idea that there is a consensus around the Anthropocene is itself a historical artifact, which brings into uh, sharp relief the problem of periodization of the Anthropocene, which is something we can talk more about. Uh, there's also the fragmentation of the Anthropocene concept into other concepts that account for the differential experiences of people in, in the 20th century uh, and before that. The Capitalocene is the sort of one that gets the most attention. Chapulocene, uh, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, the Harawayan term, and the, the, the Gynocene. Uh, this also exposes a problem that environmental historians uh, have have always dealt with, and that's this problem of the declensionist narrative. Um, this is a problem that has proven hugely vexing for environmental historians. Uh, and I'm reminded here of Paul Sutter's comments, Paul Sutter, an American environmental historian, 
who uh, did a kind of state of the state of the discipline, state of the union statement in 2013, and he said one of the things that unites environmental historians now is that um, is the notion that nature is a hybrid concept, and this is something that environmental historians in Canada united around as well. The Anthropocene still has humans as the central, the universal historical agent, uh, the agent of historical change. And this is something that environmental historians have been important in dismantling, I think. One of the central analytical outcomes of the Anthropocene is that a national framing of history is no longer adequate if we, we are to consider the whole toxic mess of social, economic, political, and environmental relations that has produced the conflict and catastrophe, uh, has produced conflict and catastrophe as the dominant modes of both material and more ontological lives. The story of environmental change is one that occurs on the largest of all possible scale, the scale of the Anthropocene. Yet it is in the local effects that we as environmental historians can rebuild these dynamic analyses. This is not to say that there haven't been some hugely exciting moments in Canadian environmental history, but these are usually when environmental history scholars branch out uh, with work that is brought in from outside the discipline. So we can turn here to things like uh, Arne Keeling and John Sandbox bringing in political ecology and, and uh, uh, environmental justice, uh, Tina's work, Tina and Phil Van Heusen, and others on, on, on reading state mobilization of resources as uh, through the critical lens of high modernism. Uh, Jen and uh, Jim and other folks at University of Saskatchewan using mapping and other geospatial visualizations uh, borrowed from the digital humanities through to Matt Dice developing a spatial history to read landscape and environmental change through the movement of knowledge and archives or Emily Cameron's recent book using narrative epistemologies to trace the storied history of copper mine Kukulukta. I don't think this is saying anything controversial the notion that environmental history is interdisciplinary, inherently interdisciplinary. The very methodological basis for environmental history lies in importing insights from ecology and from the, uh, from the environmental sciences. So the discipline was necessarily interdisciplinary from the outset. Which brings us back to the Anthropocene and to an adjunct question that Jim prompted us on around the origins of environmental history. Uh, and this essentially reflects a similar problem of periodization that I mentioned at the beginning of my so I think environmental historians in Canada have always been engaged with the Anthropocene. It's just been called something different. Uh, it's the Anthropocene by any other name. So we might adopt Innes and Staples theory as the inaugurators of the subdiscipline, and I'm, I don't think I'm the first to suggest this. I tried to find the reference and couldn't, so I'd be grateful if someone could remember <laughs> that for me. Uh, at the very least, the importance of Staples to environmental history is shown by how many environmental history starting to appeal to or argue against Staples theory in their methodology and historiography. Or we could go back to, um, yeah, sure, um, back to the, the finely detailed political economic work of the 70s and 80s, uh, good analysis, policy development, Graham's, uh, Graham Wynn's timber colony uh, are perfect examples here. And surely books like these have altered our understanding of resource conflict socioeconomic development and the relations between the state and development and resource uh, geopolitics, for example. Or we could go to that rich period in the middle, uh, the early years, the middle years of the 2000s when Niche was inaugurated, um, a whole slew of books by that first generation of environmental historians that became a kind of environmental history canon for people like me and Jen and Jim and others. Um, uh, Tina Liu's book, 
won the Nobel Prize, which may have signaled a kind of acceptance into a, a mainstream Canadian, Canadian history, who knows? But Tina's book could, could just as easily be read as a, a different kind of book. It's not necessarily environmental history. It could be read as a political or social history of conservation. It didn't require the designation of environmental history. And, and perhaps this is one of the fundamental tensions of the discipline. It's always allied in one way or another. Um, it's always allied to other ways of thinking about campus history. It's not foundational in itself, and it's always in need of other methodologies, other disciplinary traditions, to really make it deep off the page. It's this inherent interdisciplinarity uh, that is that provides it with its vitality uh, and perhaps produces the iterative nature of environmental history scholarship, but also uh, prevents it from ever attaining the status of something like gender history referred to here, which produced a really foundational break in, in I think, Canadian historical consciousness. So environmental history doesn't motivate a particular methodology, but it does rely on a normative approach to human environment relations, and that's the thing that I think is a foundational contribution to Canadian history in the last 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 X number of years, however long environmental history has been on. Thanks. I'll pass it over to Gene this question. Okay, yeah, and this uh, actually works out really well because I think I'm gonna kind of take up the other side of this is the uh, which is the yeah the effect on Canadian history. Um, so so I live in northern Ontario. I'm in a university in northern Ontario and periodically um, somebody suggests that I should take students canoeing. So we're talking about how to bring in experiential learning or reach beyond the classroom or something, and these ideas are being floated around, and somebody says, maybe Merton would want to take the students canoeing. Now, um, do you? I do not. So like, this is, this is not said because I'm a master canoeist. Um, Recently, my wife and I took the kids canoeing on a reasonably rapidly moving river, which resulted in crashing into the banks a lot. <laughs> um, the reason they say this, I think, is because I'm an environmental historian, and when they think environment, they think, in Northern Ontario, they think canoeing. Um, and so what I, the reason I bring this up is that I think, sort of vis-a-vis -vis Canadian history, what we've managed to do is we've managed to put the environment on the table. So we've got other historians to pay attention and to realize that there's this thing called environmental history and there's this history of nature. Um, so it's in Canadian history textbooks. Um, but I'm not sure we've got them thinking about the environment in the way in which we would like. Okay, so, so Donald Worcester, you know, one of the founders of the field, the American historian Donald Worcester in the 1980s, said that the environment should be you know, the basis of all history because it affects you know, everything that we do either affects nature or is affected by nature. That's maybe a bit too much to ask for, but I think that when environmental historians think about nature, they think in terms of an intricate and ever-present relationship between uh, the human and the non-human, um, one that we can never get fully right, but that is in the background of everything that we do. Whereas I suspect that many of our non-environmental history colleagues still tend to think of nature as something out there, something where we are not, that we kind of damage by our presence and that must be conserved or preserved, which is actually kind of an idea that we tend to argue against, I think, in environmental history. So I don't think we've convinced our colleagues uh, that they need to incorporate nature into their analyses in the way that they, you know, in the way that we are convinced that we need to incorporate gender, for instance. Now, talking about Canadian history overall is kind of 
you know, impossible to do. So I did a little bit of back of the envelope research, which consisted of I went and pulled the last couple of years of issues of the Canadian Historical Review, and I went through the footnotes and I looked at. So I I, I took noted three things: how many articles did I look at? Uh, how many of these would I consider to be environmental history? And how many articles cited somebody I would consider to be an environmental historian? So you can see all kinds of problems. <laughs> so I looked at 32 articles. I found three environmental history articles, including one by Andrew. Um, and I found eight citations to environmental historians. And if you, if you don't consider James Daschuk to be an environmental historian, then that drops to about five. Uh, so, um, I don't know that we've sort of infiltrated other parts of the, uh, the field of Canadian history. I don't know that we've given uh, our colleagues a way to do so, or a compelling reason why they have to incorporate the environment into their histories of, um, you know, into, their, anyway, in, into the histories they are writing. Uh, I think that one thing that might help would be more of some more theorizing, more of an analytical framework that might tie together the environment uh, in a theoretical way with uh, other aspects of history. Um, and I think this is the kind of thing so that the new Oxford Handbook of Environmental History calls for, you know, thinking about how the environment is part of the history of, of uh, gender or et cetera. Um, and I could say more about this later, perhaps. Um, I also think that um, subject matter might help. So we could do some more theorizing, but I also sort of see examples of um, books that have kind of made the environment indispensable. And um, I think so, sitting right next to me, as it turns out, is I think Jennifer's book on uh, the history of the Don River in Toronto has kind of made it impossible, I would argue, for anybody who's going to do the history of Toronto from this point on to not talk about the Don River. And in particular, if they're going to talk about industrialism or class or ethnicity or urban planning or development, um, I think you, historian of Toronto, would really need now to incorporate the Don River into your analysis in the Don Valley. Um, and I also think of, of Ken Cruikshank and Nancy Boucher's stuff on Hamilton Harbor. And also Okay, so I don't think we appreciate in Canadian history, I mean, sort of, but we've not fundamentally reshaped it. Uh, could we? Uh, we could perhaps with perhaps, um, you know, if this is something we want to do, perhaps we could think in terms of the kinds of uh, books we're going to write. Um, I also think um, perhaps a more um, theoretical understanding of how the environment relates to other areas of history uh, might be helpful as well. Thank you very much. Um, does anybody else want to build on this comment before we go on to the next question? <coughs> Any quick responses? Okay, we'll do that one. We might circle back to it by the end. Thank you, Joanne. Uh, can we define the limits of environmental history? How does it overlap and relate to uh, a whole variety of other sub-disciplines of history that have grown up kind of alongside environmental history in recent years, such as environmental, or sorry, as animal history, as a multi-species uh, history that have really flourished in the past 10 years or so. Okay, I was mostly going to talk about animal history because I've got teaching an animal history course right now with our books just come out and 
my head is filled with not much else but animals. <laughs> so, um, and, and I was going to say that's the vitality I think of environmental history is the way that it, 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 it opens itself to other, whether history of science, history of technology, other histories, and other ways of seeing the world and, and, and bring them in. Um, did you, I'm not sure, the question that Jim originally put was, is animal history environmental history? And I was going to answer that with a, a resounding yes. <laughs> um, if we go back to Staples theory, Harold Ennis started his book with the fever, right? The first chapter of that book is, is about the habits of the beaver and how the beaver behaved and how the beaver actually shaped Canada. It wasn't rivers so much as following those rivers to get to the beaver that shaped the nation. So we could start the, we could say that animals lie at the heart of environmental history from its historiographical origins as much as anything else. Um, they've run through it since then. I mean, you look at Tina Liu's work, John Sandlos's work on conservation. Um, what's changed with animal history recently with the, world, the field of animal studies is a new recognition of the sentience and agency of animals Certainly, Amos wasn't talking about agency, although his book might be seen as an example of the agency uh, on an actor network kind of theory kind of way in Canadian history. Um, and I think, in my own experience at any rate, thinking about the agency and sentience of animals has pressed me to think about agency and sentience more widely in terms of the environment. Um, I also work on trees, and suddenly my trees have become a lot more unruly and a lot more active and a lot more agential. And I think that's because animal histories forced me to think about materiality, physicality, agency in different ways. And that's the value of having a porous boundary, I think, is that you not just bring in subject matter, but you bring in ways of thinking into the field that you're originally situated in. And it's very hard to do animal history and not bring some of those questions back to bear on, on your environmental history. Um, so is that, I could go on further or I could leave it open. Maybe other people don't feel as strongly as I do about animal history being at the heart of, or definitely within the realm of environmental history. I had other points I was going to point to. Uh, Harriet Ritvo being the head of the American Society for Environmental History a whole series of really excellent animal histories that have been published in, um, in the environmental history journals recently. Um, some of the best work looked at whales and how whales have shaped the whaling, looked at squirrels and how squirrels were introductions to um, American parks, looked at um, um, turkeys and, and the production of turkeys and the genetic material of pigs and how that moved around the world. And, and by putting animals in the focus to make us think very differently about things that we thought we already understood. So, other people. I'll just I'll just add a little a little bit more to the discussion of, of animal history. That's, that's also what I took up in relation to this question. And I'm approaching this, and my, my current work is, is on um, honeybees and the history of beekeeping and environmental change um, in this region. And I think the first point I'd make is, is we might we might describe animal history as environmental history, but animal historians, not all of them, might think of themselves as environmental historians. So I think academics obviously uh, choose their own circles of belonging. 
and uh, the groups of scholars that fire their imagination. And I don't think that's always the case with animal historians choosing environmental history as their circle of belonging. Um, I would just add that I think that the animal historians whose work draws the most energy from approaches in environmental history and perhaps it has the most to contribute to date to, to environmental history discussions are those who really consider actively that relationship between animals and environments. And I think your relation to Innes and um, the references between beavers, rivers, and, and trade, certainly a, a good example. I think of discussions of feral pigs in colonial environments or caribou populations in Canada's north as being really good fits of, of animal history within the broader umbrella of environmental history. But I'm also um, excited and um, stimulated by these discussions of, of agency, of unruliness that animal history brings to environmental history and asks us to think a little differently. Um, I think another kind of animal history that really draws energy from um, discussions in environmental history are those that consider the effects either intended or otherwise of, of local practices and state policies on animal populations. Um, whether we're talking about um, you know, barriers to movement, the future effects of Trump's wall, um, <laughs> barriers to invasive species, livestock fences, those kind of things, um, actual culls of animals, so the active effects of policy on, on animals and the human relationships with them. So in other words, animal histories that are deeply seated in environmental and social context, I think, are those that, that fit most easily within our tent. That's not to say that we should only accept the things that fit easily. And I think the things that make us a little um, um, prickly, perhaps, are the things that, that make us reconsider um, the ways we've approached things in the past, such as these questions of agency, which always bring up prickliness, right, um, are, are things that we should be reading and, and, and bringing into our, our awareness. I'm increasingly interested in histories of biodiversity as well. I see this as a as a new subfield that's developing to think beyond the animals that we um, have active records for, that we uh, can categorize a little more easily, um, to think about shifting understandings of biodiversity, biodiversity as a, as a concept that the public can grasp, thinking about um, histories of diversity and abundance of wildlife, um, and the ways that we've, that we've um, learned about that over time. Uh, and perhaps changed our, our analyses. And there's some good journalistic work on this idea of, of shifting benchmarks in terms of what we understand as um, nature, uh, whether that nature is uh, you know, a diversity of species or, or come to represent house sparrows in the context of our cities today, right? So I think um, thinking about histories of biodiversity and changing understanding of of what is nature out there? What do we expect in terms of abundance and diversity of life around us? And how that changes our perceptions of, is everything okay? Or we've got some things to, to consider. So I'll stop there, because I think this question opens up other subdisciplines as well. Yeah, just quickly, I'm, I was just thinking from both your comments, actually, that, that uh, the question of agency and, and materiality particularly relates to something like energy history, really, really, uh, uh, reading material. Um, just thinking about uh, the relationship between uh, geology and uh, and the production of 
of oil cultures uh, in various oil towns, or alternatively, the relationship between geology and the development of, of technological imperatives or technological innovation. All these different kinds of things are directly related to the, the actual materiality of, of the substance in energy. Thank you very much. So when I wrote this question, we actually had one more person uh, on Dan McFarland who wasn't able to make it, so think of at least one more uh, white male uh, in front of you to think of the, the imbalance. Um, we, I'm going to pass it back to, to Jen, who's done a bit of research. She's going to share some numbers with us. Uh, well, I didn't bring those numbers um, directly today, but we all did a little bit of back of the envelope tallying. Um, Jim uh, actually spreadsheeted it. I just uh, we started to talk amongst ourselves. How what is the gender divide in environmental history? Um, and we realized that it depends on how you count, and it depends on the questions you're asking. Um, and it's not as easily uh, it's not as easy as easy a question to answer as we might have thought. So our gender divide here is, is three to seven um, in terms of, of women to men represented. Our rough tally, Jim's work, we found a little under two to one um, in terms of, of male to female um, people identifying as environmental historians. When we look to questions of um, race and ethnicity, we found that that factor shifts to more like nine to one. Um, in terms of people of color represented in the field. And these are looking at um, faculty positions in particular. And here's where, of course, it gets murky um, because are these people in history departments? Are they people doing environmental history work that you know, may be coming from um, other disciplines, from geography, um, from anthropology in some cases? So part of it is, is how you're looking, I think. Many, there's many good examples of women scholars who are doing work on human nature relations who don't fall neatly into our, the field of environmental history. I think of Julie Cruikshank's work. Um, Adele Perry has a new book on aqueducts in Winnipeg. Sharon Walls' um, work on, on childhood and summer camps. So people who might um, place themselves in other circles of belonging but whose work nevertheless has has inspired a lot of good thinking in environmental history. So that's, that's the first question about, about where are we at in terms of this gender divide. How to address this, uh, I think in discussion we came up with um, a, few, a few thoughts among us as a group and I've given this some, some additional thought. I think we need to remain and continue to be more and more open to new approaches and this reflects back on our, our last um, question here. Um, do we need a central framework in environmental history? And perhaps that's something we can, we can discuss. I really want to push back on any kind of centralizing framework. I think we really benefit from the diversity of approaches that um, environmental history incorporates. And I think in terms of what women can bring, um, being open to oral history, to um, biographical approaches to place-based stories. This is a way of continuing to um, keep the field open and welcome to women scholars. And of course, you know, many of us are taking up GIS and spatial analyses and all sorts of other things. But I would push back against any kind of centralizing framework. I also am encouraged and um, excited to see a growing acceptance, not only in environmental history, but in other subfields of history as well to different forms of expression. 
to working with um, performance, thinking about um, John Walsh's work and some of the work at, at Carleton, um, to the incorporation of histories of sound and um, different digital expressions. This is a way of continuing to keep participation and ways of participating open. I think there's been a tendency in the discipline to characterize environmental history, especially from those outside the field, as, some, as, as a field that's unpeopled, um, that you know, characterizes history of planning and policy without those rich nuances um, that, that social history brings, that cultural history brings. And I think we need to push against this, not by rallying for more environmental history in undergraduate syllabuses so much, not by um, railing against the, the lack of consideration of environmental history. For one, I think we are seeing more of it on undergrad syllabuses. But by producing the kind of richly peopled, place-based environmental history that people want to read. Um, and that inspires a, you know, a broader readership. And I think the work of women in this field, uh, the publications we've seen, the rich um, and large quantity of publications we've seen by women environmental historians in recent years shows how well positioned we are to do this. Two other brief comments on addressing this gender divide. I think Tina Adcock's work recently, her challenge to herself to bring affirmative action into her syllabus development to make sure she was looking beyond our, our known suspects in environmental history to reach into other fields to draw women's contributions into her syllabus um, is, is really exemplary as a way to, uh, to bring this question into our own practice. Certainly affirmative action in hiring has been effective to some degree and bringing environmental history in as a subfield in, in terms of looking for, for hires. Um, where we might bring in um, women and people of color who are addressing questions of environment, but perhaps applying for, for a job in another field. Let's stop there. Any quick response to keep us moving? Um, yeah, uh, like what prompted the discussion of gender was actually a report put together by the Women's Environmental History Network in the American Society for Environmental History. And, and, and their report was a lot more disturbing. I, I, just, I won't read you all the figures, but 15% of the research articles in the main journal in the field, environmental history, are by women. 15%. Not only that, women's acceptance rate was 10%. Men's acceptance rate was 22%. So that suggests it's not just that very few women are getting published in the main journal in the field, but that the women are being turned away at twice the rate of men. So I'll be a little more dogmatic or doctrinaire or activist about this. Um, there's this group's been created with the American Society for Environmental History, which includes many, many Canadians, to start to work to address this. Their report has some very disturbing numbers. I'm somewhat relieved to see that Canada's a little better. If we look at our UBC, which is the main book press for environmental history, they've published 17 men and 12 women. So that's actually not that bad compared to the American figures. And the University of Calgary Press, um, 11 men to 5 women. Still not equal, but a whole lot better than the American figures. The, the publishing in the big American environmental history series are like 22%, 9%, 13%, 0%. These are the figures from that report. Um, it's a bigger problem um, in the States, perhaps, that many of us aspire to publish in environmental history and the other journals. I think it is a problem, and I think it does perhaps um, have consequences for the way that our work is received and the way that we present it. I look around this room and we're two to one 
um, and to women. Um, so I think there is something we do need to think very carefully about, about why our field is such a masculine one and um, in what ways barriers have been set up that have meant women haven't always felt welcome in the field. I don't think it's intentional by any means, but, but there's something going on. Um, so there we are. I just add a little something. I also really appreciate the one report. Uh, the one thing that I wish had happened in the making of that report is that the more Canadian data was included yes. in the discussion group, uh, NHS, who's, as you say, uh, comes up very well in comparison. It's not perfect, of course. But it, uh, it, it led me to do a manual count of articles in the Brown Industry since 2000. And uh, of Canadian-based authors, I think, the greatest citizens of the people who are at Canadian institutions. And it's quite interesting to see the pattern of publication over time. Uh, uh, only one woman, Canadian woman, who's a writer, has published in environmental history since 2010. But then again, only two or three Canadians total have. So what I what I noticed over time was a spike in 2009 when we had a special candidate issue, and otherwise. In some years with no Canadian articles, um, and then uh, a real decline in the, in the, in the recent period. A another thing that I thought to do in response to that report is to try and uh, come up with a count of Canada research chairs uh, in Canada. Because those are signals of new directions and fields, and there's of course been a lot of important controversy recently around the gender discrimination behind awarding of chairs, uh, first one in history of science raising the profile of those issues. So I, I listed a number of Canada research chairs uh, going back to about 2000. And the, the breakdown is better than in history in general. So counting those from geography and history, uh, six women have held them up, a total of 11 chairs. But here's the disturbing part. Only two remain active. And they're both held by women right now. Uh, so, two points coming from my account that which were unexpected. The Canadian field in general and women publishing in the Canadian field has gone down in environmental history recently. And the number of research chairs devoted to this field, to this grant field, has gone down for the account. Thank you very much. We're gonna drive us on to our next question <coughs> Stephen Hawking is going to start off with this is Another very broad question, what contributions has Canadian environmental history made history more generally, to environmental history more generally? What contributions are we poised to make in the future? Okay, yeah, thanks, Chairman. It's been really interesting to hear all the conversations so far, right? Very thought-provoking in all kinds of ways. Um, I thought I'd just talk about, um, especially focusing on the second question there, because folks have already talked about really interesting work that's been done in the past. So just thinking about what kind of work that we could be thinking about more in the future and that we are, we are to some extent thinking about. Um, so three areas in particular. One of them, uh, I'll mention it first because it's an area that's always been close to my heart and that's the environmental history of knowledge. Um, I've been struck thinking about just while listening to folks and thinking about um, the evolution of the environmental history of knowledge over the last 20, 25 years and how it has developed enormously in the field. It's become a tremendously fertile area of environmental history scholarship generally, and that's been really striking. I think back to like when I um, published a book about the history of ecology in 1997, and I didn't think of myself at all at that time as an environmental historian. I was an historian of science, um, period. 
And I think at that time, I didn't really think of environmental history as an area where a field that was really congenial to doing research on the history of, of scientific topics. And that's really changed. And it's changed as well in terms of not just considering uh, like uh, doing the easy death uh, equivalents of science and knowledge, but thinking about broadly, more broadly, about different ways of, of knowing nature. So like the interaction between scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge, for example, community-based knowledge, experiential knowledge, and so forth. So that's been a really interesting and dynamic area of environmental history, and it's been very gratifying to see that emerge over the last decade or so. Um, I think we could do more focus on more, there needs to be more attention on understanding knowledge generation, including science, as an activity itself that takes place in the environment, that has environmental consequences, and that is itself, itself shaped by the environment. I think we could do more in terms of integrating the political roles of knowledge and expertise into environmental history as well, so especially through um, more collaborations, uh, at least reading more of the literature of work by historians of science, science and technology, science and technology studies scholars, anthropologists of science, and, and so forth. So that's that's a really interesting um, area, I think. Uh, and finally, I think if we think about knowledge, it could really help us develop a more appropriately critical perspective on the big concepts like the Anthropocene, you know, which is the the paradigm of a concept imported wholesale from science and readily adopted in in not necessarily by environmental historians, but in wider communities of, of thought and discussion. And that's, that's something, uh, that's the kind of concept that I think environmental historians are particularly positioned, well positioned to examine more critically than other folks are doing so. A uh, second area that I don't think has been talked about too much this morning, but that is a central preoccupation of the historical profession in Canada generally, is the relationship between mainstream Canadian history and, and indigenous history. Um, whether it's in terms of the history of settler-indigenous relations or the history of, of indigenous relations with nature, for example. I think that's something that we need to do more creative thought about how to integrate, how to, how to draw on, how to think about indigenous perspectives in an environmental history context. And I think in particular there's huge opportunities here to use um, uh, indigenous insights to rethink how we consider fundamental structures of environmental history itself, like the nature of evidence, the nature of causation, the nature of how we think we know something that happened in the past, you know, drawing more effectively on the amazing work of folks like, like Julie Cookshank has already been mentioned. So that kind of, that indigenous dimension, I think that should really be an area of preoccupation for environmental historians in the future. And the third one I just wanted to mention really briefly was, is the, the need for a more encompassing transnational perspective in environmental history. I was, I'm motivated, especially by my experience, and went to the um, Grading Canada 150 session uh, last night. And it was a really interesting discussion, amazing people in front of the room, with lots of insights. But throughout the entire evening, I don't think there was a single mention, a single acknowledgement of the fact that Canada actually exists in a world beyond, <laughs> the, 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 beyond its boundaries. There's 199 or so other countries. It was a, such an insular, inward-looking conversation. I was really struck and kind of depressed by that. And I thought, this is something that environmental historians can certainly push back on, push back on, and to acknowledge that um, even the most place-based histories are necessarily integrated into wider transnational flows of, of commodities, of power, of money, of, of, uh, of knowledge, and so forth. Um, you know, when I'm 
been trying over the last few years to try to understand the environmental history of salmon farming, for example. And even though that's a very place-based industry, it's really fully integrated into transnational networks of, of capital, you know, most of the industry being headquartered in Norway, of knowledge, of, tech, of flows of technology, uh, the commodity itself being exported to Tokyo fish market and everywhere else on the planet, uh, the feedstock that are fed to salmon being imported from the South Pacific and brought to British Columbia or elsewhere. You know, it's, a, it's an intensely local industry that's a very transnational industry as well. So, you know, it's just underlines for me how we have to think about uh, really always consider the transnational context. I was really delighted, like, just beginning before the session when I met Micah for the first time, she mentioned how she's doing a transnational history of gold mining in Northern Ontario. And I thought, yes. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. And you know, I, I hope we see more of that kind of really innovative work going on. So, those are my comments. Yeah, yeah, we will see more of that. <laughs> I was just thinking, uh, one of, well, the reason that I'm here today in one of my hats is as the DHD scholars rep. And so for the past year, once a month, I organize discussions with um, young and emerging environmental historians across Canada and the United States. And um, one of the major themes that I've noticed is that many of us are engaged in these kinds of transnational projects. And I think that's one of the big contributions that new scholars are going to, from Canada specifically are going to be making to the broader discipline of environmental history in the future. Uh, but I also wanted to kind of remark on what you said about transnational history because I was recently, well, I met McMaster, um, but I was at the Undiplomatic History Workshop, I'm not sure if anybody here was there, um, organized by the Wilson Institute, basically a Canadian history and transnationalism workshop. And it was three days long, and for two days, Nobody talked about the environment or about material history. Uh, and on the third day, Petra and Dan McFarlane came in and, and saved the day. But I, I, <laughs> I, it really struck me that this is somewhere where there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for environmental historians in Canada um, to work with kind of this, this national narrative. Maybe I'll just add a quick quote to that too. That I, I had similar experience to you. I was at the, uh, a workshop on, on Arctic affairs at, at the Monk Center at U of T last late April, and um, had similar experience that there are IR specialists, political scientists, and so forth in the room, and the environment was not in the room. You know that it's just not environmental history, history discourse is not part of the discourse of political scientists and so forth, even though we're focused on specific region. This next question comes out of the introduction of the new, very large Oxford uh, collection on history of environment. It's already been referenced today. That makes an argument that there's the second generation of environmental history in the United States, and they are the second generation. No Canadians are part of that second generation, apparently. <laughs> another place to notice the decline of our influence of the border. I'll pass this over to uh, Matt. Well, I'll keep this short because you made several of my key points um, This is a, uh, a reference coming out of Andrew Eisenberg's introduction to this quite weighty tome, and it's, it's one with a lot of really interesting work in it. I recommend it to you. Um, there is no question that it is a remarkably American-focused book, both in terms of the substantive content of the work and of the authors who populated uh, its, its key findings. The point that Ted Binneman and others have made it of the book, but specifically about the claim of the second generation of environmental history. Um, Eisenberg also uses the phrase of a new environmental history. 
what he's signaling here is a move beyond the idealist materialist debates of the 1990s that so uh, 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 troubled the field of environmental history, provided some of its, its energy in those years. He claims there's a, a step beyond those kinds of debates now. Um, he notes the greater engagement with different fields, cultural history, histories of race, histories of science and technology, for environmental, for example. Um, but there's still, in the use of the phrase second generation, some notion of an age cohort here, too, which I, I think uh, maybe has crept into the sections of this discussion, too. Jono uh, referred to the first generation, and I suddenly realized, <laughs> I guess I'm in the first generation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I seized on this question because I thought this might come up, and I wanted to put my stamp on it uh, and uh, question whether or not we should think about second generation whether this helps or hinders our work or historiographical analysis. And I'm going to come down strongly in saying we should just not use it. <laughs> uh, why not? I mean, I don't think you should use it in the American field either for a set of other reasons. But uh, why not in Canada? Well, in part because the field, as a self conscious field, is a later starter than the United States. So the age cohort notion operates now pretty quickly. Uh, Alan McEachern's piece in 2002, Voices Crying in the Wilderness, about the slow emergence of environmental history. That was 2002, only 15 years ago. Um, and of course, there are all kinds of roots earlier that we could flag and have it. One thing I would say about the Canadian field that's a bit distinctive is the fact that it has grown up intellectually and institutionally in the context of this major collaborative uh, effort around niche. And that has been, I think, collectively to everyone's benefit for the most part. But let's look at things from another perspective. Maybe it has also flattened debate to some extent because it's such a convivial, cooperative exercise. And, and it's so pluralistic in its vision, welcoming different perspectives, I would say, to the questions of human environmental relations. Maybe that has limited us from having more sharp-edged discussions about our, our differences. So some provocations to end with. Maybe we need to be turning more to uh, bigger questions. Uh, we've already talked about them. Stephen stole my thunder, mentioning various things that we must be doing. I wholeheartedly agree with all of his comments, so I won't re uh, reproduce them. And picking up on uh, uh, Jen's points and Joanna's, I'd also say that uh, in terms of provocation, we need to think really hard about our institutions and the lack of diversity in our field. Um, certainly, the question of gender diversity is at the forefront of our thinking. We also need to think hard about uh, diversity in terms of cultural background, race, etc. And also, old Canadian questions of language and region. Uh, we do not have a, a Quebecois participant in our panel today. The uh, English language scholarship in environmental history uh, is really plugged into the American field, but I, I would hazard a guess that fewer uh, Canadian English-speaking environmental historians read the Quebec scholarship. Um, and then, uh, again, Stephen's point about the need thinking about big questions and old Canadian questions. We need to think hard about uh, the question of settler Canada and how environmental history um, 
re rethinks itself in the context of the era of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the explosion of religious and religious religions. That would stop there. Anybody want to quickly respond before we move on to our last set of questions? Maybe just add in terms of if we are if we are going to think about age cohorts, I think at least at York we are we push that term aside, but still the representation of grad students in environmental history, I think we, we have to notice at least at least at York we're seeing a great decline. Um, so whether this is just a lull, um, it's something that certainly on our radar. That's an interesting comment, and this with other ones too. But that is interested in the statistics that, that were, were mentioned earlier. That uh, it's apparently indicating a decline in hiring of environmental historians, certainly in the CRC program and so on. So it just calls to mind the, the notion that I, I agree completely with the, with like talking about a second generation of environmental history or any other discipline is really kind of uh, I don't see that as useful. On the other hand, kind of the point. Can it be argued that that plays an important political function in terms of like signaling to the broader historical profession or to the university community generally that there's, there's something going on here, there's a new generation of environmental history that has to be represented in every history department and so forth? I mean, is there, even if we think that second generation is, terminology is, is not very sensible, is there, does it fulfill some kind of political function? So we've got our final uh, set question that Mike is going to uh, try to tackle. How has environmental history contributed to public discussions and debates about climate change, urban development, parks policy, water management, extractive industries, pipelines, and all the other topics? Uh, <laughs> and how can we do better on this front, getting our research uh, out there into the public? I'm not going to cover all of those things. <laughs> um, I just wanted to kind of use this time to reflect on some of the things that came out of the new scholars discussions that we had and some of the major themes that came up. Um, and one of the big things was about public engagement. New scholars are really, really interested in public engagement. We see it um, as increasingly important, not just for uh, our, the academic job market, but also for the alt-ec job market. We want um, to be engaging the public, we're actively interested in it. And we feel quite a lot of pressure, in fact, to be relevant and to contribute to public debates around environmental history. And we talked about this, we had a discussion on digital humanities, and we had um, an online roundtable organized by Jessica, where we talked about current politics, which we said before, and these ideas came up in both of those conversations. Uh, and, and in particular, we discussed in that, in that online roundtable, we discussed how um, a recent piece by John McNeil where he talked about um, in the States, environmental historian in the States, he said, environmental historians have no special obligation to be uh, useful or contemporarily relevant. They can if they wish, uh, but they essentially don't need to. And, and we kind of all, I think, agreed that we don't feel that way. We do feel that we need to be relevant. Um, but that perhaps this isn't as much work as, as McNeil makes it out to be, that in fact, um, simply by doing environmental history, we are and by choosing the topics that we do, um, I mean, we're kind of inherently relevant, we're inherently contributing to a really important public discussion account. Uh, and so new scholars are doing this in a number of different ways. We, we've talked about um, varying successes of our, our various blogs. 
But um, your scholars are also engaging in public debates by doing things like uh, joining local historical association Facebook groups, which is really successful, um, and doing things like digital spatial analysis, um, which is kind of more accessible, more shareable via blog. Uh, also, publishing. Um, I wanted to highlight, I know John Sandlos and I can link up a lot already in this round table, but um, their recent book is one great example, I think, of new scholars contributing um, to kind of a public debates. Mining Communities is this editing collection which is explicitly present as it makes actual claims to want to inform policy. Uh, and there are quite a few PhD students and postdocs who contributed to that work. So I think that's um, evidence of our willingness and our ability to engage these kinds of things. Uh, and then just kind of a, a final note, a lot of new scholars, perhaps this is a reflection of the job market, um, but a lot of new scholars are also kind of moonlighting as consultants um, in their spare time in addition to doing their work uh, in PhD programs. So to me, that's interesting. Um, how can we be better was part of the original question. Um, I think that in some ways, we are kind of still talking to ourselves, even on Twitter. I think that uh, we're talking to ourselves. We're not actually reaching a broader, non-academic audience a lot of the time. Um, so I think that perhaps there's room for improvement there. And I also think that, I think Jennifer was talking about kind of non-traditional um, forms of academic production that are not currently recognized as legitimate scholarly contributions. I think there's kind of room um, for things like social outreach, uh, blogging, map creation, et cetera, to be recognized on professional communities as legitimate academic labor. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Stephen Bocking, Jennifer Bennell, Jim Clifford, Joanna Dean, Matthew Evenden, Micah Jorgensen, James Merton, Jonathan Payton, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.